If you have your Bibles, open it to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, raise your hands and we'll get one to you. Here in the front row, there's one. And we're going to start reading from chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read, first of all, to verse 13, and then we'll pick up from there. It's Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? I kept quiet because they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the money, the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Last week, in chapter 4, we, we talked about opposition, how Sanballat and Tobiah were opposing the Jewish people as they were rebuilding the wall. We talked about how change causes opposition. People don't like when things change. It makes us uncomfortable, and it's a lot easier to just stay in our place of comfort. But when we start making the changes and there starts to become opposition, that many times that opposition especially when it comes in the forms of threats as it did to the Jewish people from their enemies, it took away their strength. They found themselves 
powerless. They've been working, trying to get this wall rebuilt, trying to establish their nation once again and have a little bit of security. And they were doing great. In verse 6 of chapter 4, it says they were all working with one heart. There was this unity. They were all dancing and partying, having a great time. At least that's the impression I get. And then all of a sudden, this impression came down on them. Threats. We're going to kill you as soon as we get the chance. And it took their strength. And Joshua had to make plans to, to guard the people, to protect them. And we saw the importance of continuing and not giving up. We talked about how important it is for us not to grow weary in doing what's right. And the proper time will receive a harvest if we don't give up. And so we were challenged by the scriptures not to give up, even though there is opposition, even though when the difficulties come, we feel like our strength is gone. If we persevere, we will find strength again. And so last week we looked at how the opposition from the enemy stole their strength. But this week we see that it's opposition from their brothers. Last week it was opposition from without. There was oppression from without. Now it's oppression from within. And as opposition from your enemies would steal your strength, we see that the opposition from those who are close to you actually steal your freedom. It steals your life. And it's sad, but it's true. And we don't like to talk about these kinds of things. And if you came this morning expecting to get a a cheerful message, well, sorry. Uh, Hopefully it'll still be encouraging. It's our intent to get all that God has for us to learn from these passages. But really the, the terrible truth is that a lot of oppression takes place from those who we are close with. There is a lot of things that take place in the church that we don't like to talk about it. The world outside has no problem talking about it, but we don't want to address it. But really, it's this kind of opposition that comes from within our own family that I think causes the most damage. There's a quote Erwin McManus has made that he says the greatest enemy to the cause of Jesus Christ is Christianity. And if you think about that and what that entails, I know it sounds a little bit alarming, but it's been my experience that so many people I have talked to who are not of faith, who don't believe in Jesus, the problem they have is what other Christians have done, what other Christians have said, how they have misrepresented Jesus and who he is. And so they want nothing to do with it because of this religion that comes across them as unloving, unloving, uncaring, and very legalistic. I had a a meeting with a friend of mine Friday night. We went out to dinner and we met and sat down and he had been on a mission in uh, Wales for about a year. And when he went over there to get involved with this church, as soon as he got there, the church that he involved in, the pastor left, and it kind of crumbled. And so they kind of mingled with this other group of believers, and he said it turned out to be a really neat thing. 
that they really kind of started from the grassroots and they had this real common bond. They really had a lot of small groups going on where throughout the week they would meet with each other, have this little kind of Bible study, and people would come and they just felt very welcome, very loving. They started meeting on a Sunday and after their meeting they would sit there and have tea and biscuits because that's what you have in Wales is, you know, the tea and what do they, the Welsh cakes. They have these Welsh cakes. They're not that good, but they have these Welsh cakes. And, and so they'd sit there and they'd meet, and he said they'd meet for an hour afterwards and just hang out together. And he just got really close to a lot of people. And then he had to come back because of lack of money and because his visa was kind of expiring. He had to come back here, and so he came back, and he said, I just hate what church is here in the United States. It's so formal. It's so unfamily. It just feels like it's a club. And so I tried to encourage him. I told him, hey, there's some places I know near you that I think you'll see. It's not that way with everybody. But then my concern was, is it that way here? Is Genesis becoming a religious organization that becomes about the organization and not about you and me and the people that we care about. Because the greatest potential for hurt comes from those we are closest to. And you guys know that. You've experienced that in your own lives. It's the ones you love who can cause the most hurt. It's your husband, it's your wife, it's your children. You care for them, and if they do something that betrays that love or something that causes you harm, it, it's devastating. And it scars our souls, and it leaves an impression. And those friends who we trust, who we confide in, when they turn on us. How devastating is that? You see, the people who we don't care about, they don't have all that information. They don't have all the knowledge about us. We haven't opened our hearts and lives usually up to them as much, but those who we really pour ourselves out to, they are the ones who have the potential to do the most damage as well as the most good. And so we find ourselves in this place where we are trying to develop community. We want us to be able to work together, to be knit together, to have this closeness. But then there is this awareness of if it's too close, it can become dangerous. I become vulnerable. What if someone misuses that trust? What if someone takes advantage? And we know it happens all the time. As I was talking to my friend, we were going over some things that had happened to him and other things that I know. I mean, this even last month, there's been a number of things that I have been aware of from friends of mine who have been hurt, betrayed by their pastors. There's an article in a uh, online magazine that talks about this mega church and how they are trying to discipline the people in their 
congregation and this one man who had fallen into sexual sin confessed to a small group and he got kicked out of the small group and had to sign a contract that said he was going to not be involved with any of these things and then they wanted him to confess all the areas where he was emotionally or physically involved in sin and he had to write those out and give them to his fiance as well as to the leaders there of the church. Yeah, it makes you want to go to church, don't it? And he left. He said, uh-uh. Where's my family? Is this how our family is supposed to treat each other? And you see, here are the people who we are supposed to be knit together, and we find ourselves with the ability to misrepresent Jesus. And that's where, again, that quote comes in, where I think the most harm that is done to the cause of Jesus Christ has been in the name of Christianity. And so people who are outside looking and they hear this or they read this article because now it's public and they say, are you kidding? Go to church? Not me. Did you hear what they did to Andrew? Oh man, he had to sign a contract. Really? You go to church, you have to sign a contract? And what we see Nehemiah doing here with the people is he's addressing them with what are you doing? Because when people become opportunities for your advancement instead of family, something is wrong in that community. If you come here or I come here and I look at you as, you know, dollar signs, how much do you make a year? Can you write that down on a little sheet of paper? Or you come here and you have a life insurance, you know, company. And you start talking to them, so do you have any life insurance? Or you sell Amway, I don't know what it is. You know, whatever it is, you think of this as opportunity for your business. Well, if I can get more in touch with people, I can try and sell them these things. And it's no longer about the people, it's about you. It's about how you can take advantage of the situation and something is wrong. And that's what was taking place here. They were giving out money, but they were charging incredible interest. And so here are the Jewish people. They've come back from all around the region, from the captivity of Babylonia and the Persians, and now they're starting to make their way back into the city, and they're trying to rebuild this wall so they can have protection around them. And the time that it takes to, to build the wall is time that is taking away from them planting in the fields and working. And some of the nobles who have money say, hey, you know what, we can make an opportunity out of this. We can take advantage of these people. And so they start, hey, we'll, we'll give you some money so that you can keep living, so you can buy grain, but you're going to owe us with interest. And so they say, well, I got to keep eating and we got to keep doing this work. Okay, we'll do it. And pretty soon I can't pay you. Okay, well, then we're going to have to take your children. They'll start working for us. They're going to be in, enslaved to our needs now because you can't pay. And it says that even some of their daughters have already been enslaved. And, and again, think how horrific that is. Think of what is taking place here, how these people are just trying to live and their own kinsmen are taking advantage so that they have to give up their own daughters in servitude. And when Nehemiah heard this, it angered him. 
and rightly so. And I love what it says. Is in verse 7, where he says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles. He, he just pondered it for a second. It's like, I thought about this and I said, yeah, no, this ain't right. I need to say something. I was angry. Let me think about it. Yeah, I have a right to be angry. You know, sometimes we have a right to be angry. Sometimes things are being done in the name of Jesus and we have a right to say, no, that's not Right. The way this man was treated at this church, that's not right. What he did isn't good, but the way they treated him wasn't right. My friend whose pastor betrayed him, that wasn't right. And we need to be able to say that and not be afraid. Because this idea of responsibility is supposed to be connected to one another. We are knit together. And as Nehemiah beseeches them and he says, you're brothers, how can you do this to one another? He is addressing them and compelling them to see the unity that is supposed to be taking place within them. And they're not seeing that. These are things that happens to us. It happened to Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Alexander, the coppersmith, the metal maker, he has done me great harm. This was someone who was a part of his work. Jesus, betrayed by one of his disciples. It's something that takes place, and when it does, it has to be addressed so that it doesn't continue because it is supposed to be a place that health develops, not where we have to be afraid. This is supposed to be a place where we encourage each other and build each other up. If you have your Bible, turn it to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Starting at verse 1, Paul's writing, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, has anyone been comforted by Christ's love? Hopefully you can all raise your hand to that one. If any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, this is to be our example. Jesus, who could have taken his authority and used it to his advantage, instead thought of others as more important to himself, 
more important than himself, and gave and served for their benefit. That's to be our mindset. That's to to be how we see things. That was supposed to be what was taking place with the people, the nobles at Nehemiah's time, but it wasn't. They were taking advantage. What would happen if our tribe, you genocites, (laughs) make sure you don't say genocide, right? (laughs) Genocites with a T. What if we were a community that really thought of each other as more important than ourselves? If we really cared about the others and wanted to see what was beneficial? What if we just had that intention of mind? What would our community look like? People would be breaking down the doors to get in. People desire Long for that kind of relationship with people where someone would just care for me, where someone would really show interest and want what's best for me. And this is supposed to be our mind. Not what can I get, but how can I give? Where can I give and what way can I give? And if we had this frame of mind, I think we would see a change in just the whole atmosphere of who we are. Because this is supposed to be what we look like. This is supposed to be how we act. And it's tragic that people look in and say, I don't want to be a part of that because we're not living this way. Because we don't have this mind of Christ taking place within us. It's something that's comforting when you're a part of a group, a team, a tribe. There, there are some benefits to that. If you are involved with sports, it's great having other people who are good on your team, you know, who you can pass the ball to. Why? Because they're good. Last, not last year, the following year when we did the men's Highlander. Again, a little plug for this year's men's Highlander. You know, what we do is we break up into different tribes. There's different uh, church communities that are involved. And for that weekend, we compete in flag football, in basketball. There was uh, engineering challenges. There were word challenges. There were video game challenges just for those who exercise their thumbs and not the rest of their body. I mean, there's all these areas where we can get involved and and participate. And it was our first year, and so we went there, and there was about 15 of us guys, I think, something around that. But other tribes had like 30 guys. We had 15. And our first year, we were kind of scrambling to find our way. You know, there was... Uh, obstacle courses, and we had to do relay races where, you know, the guys are running. And then if we had more guys, well, they could go play basketball. But because we didn't have more guys, the guys who had just finished going on the relay race had to go play basketball, okay? <laughs> you know, and then I'll, I'll blame it on the mountain air and not the fact that I'm overweight, but, you know, it's just like you start running out of steam, And you find that, boy, if we had another 10 guys, it would really help right now. It would really make the difference. 
Or have you ever gone into a group and you're the only one there? No one else is part of your friendship or family and you're just, you know, at the party alone. And it's awkward. Everyone's dancing with someone and you're just there in the middle. You know, I got nobody. I just, uh, you're not connected to a tribe and so you feel alienated. You feel alone. And there's something about having a person there that you know you recognize. And when you see them, you're able to go, yeah, you're here, I'm so happy. Guys don't do that. You girls, you do it. Oh, you run in here. Guys, you're all, hey. Inside, you're all, yeah. You know, you're all jazzed. But outside, you're just, hey, man, how's it going? Good, good. Yeah. But just to have that camaraderie is so important. That's why Paul talks about us being a body. And that when one member suffers, we all suffer. And when one member is honored, we're all honored. And so there is supposed to be this dynamic where we are connected to one another and we get and help and gain from each other. And it's what we are supposed to be. It is how we are supposed to be. You and I need each other. And this is to be a tribe where there is that camaraderie, where there is a common goal, where there is not the oppression of one another, but there is the encouragement and esteeming others as more important than ourselves that this is a family where healing can take place so that when we do struggle, when we do stumble, you're not going to get blasted. You're going to be encouraged to move forward, to put the things that are holding you back away and to go forward and we'll hold you and we'll take you and we'll carry you if we need to. But this is your family and we need to do that. Those of you who are parents, you may know, it depends how old your kids are, <laughs> how much grief they've put you through. You know, there, there's something that takes place where you're, you're helpless. You're helpless to do anything but love. I mean, and it starts from the earliest age. Your kids, when they're born, all they do is demand that you feed them and then poop on you. I mean, they don't give to you anything that's really beneficial except that love that you connect to them. Let's face it, babies are pretty selfish. They're demanding. I want this, I want that, I'll cry, now I'm happy. You give me what I want, I'm happy. And for some reason, we love them. <laughs> Not only do we love them, we can't imagine life without them. They capture our hearts. And it never changes. 
as they get older and they become teenagers. Mark Twain said, when a kid becomes a teenager, you should put him in a barrel with a hole in it. And he said, when they turn 16, you should plug the hole. <laughs> That's what Mark Twain said. I... There becomes this defiance and this challenge. I hate you. You're so mean to me. You don't. Can I have my phone back? You know, they're just... <laughs> there's this opposition, and you get so angry. But if anything happens to them, it's devastating to you. Because your heart is knit to them in that love. There is a connection there that is, just makes you helpless. Because you love. And you never stop. That love and that relationship is something that you care about because of who they are and what that relationship is supposed to be. And you see, this family that we are to have isn't supposed to take advantage of one another. It is supposed to help each other. We're supposed to benefit from one another and not use opportunity to get what we want but to be able to help each other. And unfortunately, that's something that happens in a lot of leadership at churches. It just does. There are things that I think back on, and, you know, I mean, I did it with the best intentions, was involved with ministry and things, and I realized that, you know, I sacrificed a lot of my family for ministry. And looking back, I would have done things a lot different. Just the other day, talking with my daughter, Lauren, and we were remembering when our twins were first born. First two babies, they were just born, premature. They were six weeks premature. And so it kind of caught us off guard. I'm a dad of twin boys. I'm like, oh, man, I'm like in this fog I can't imagine what it's going to be like. And, and because they were premature, they had to stay in the hospital for another few days. And that weekend, there was a high school retreat, and I was the high school leader. And I got sent away that weekend. And I don't remember that weekend because I was like, my wife just had twins. I need to stay home. Well, you can't. You, you have to go to the high school retreat. And so here I am with all these high school kids. My wife is in the hospital by herself with my twin boys. And I'm in ministry. I got to go. I should have pondered in my thought. I should have pondered and said, no, I'm not. But you know, you got to do what you got to do. And, and there is just this obligation that wasn't good. And that's why I, I try to be careful, and I know I try and listen to our leadership. I don't ever want to come across as oppressive. I'm never going to demand that you do anything here at Genesis. And if you are going to do something that's going to cause problems between you and your husband or wife, I don't want Genesis to be responsible for that. It would be better if that didn't happen. It would be better if you didn't do something that was going to be problematic. It's okay. 
you're more important than whatever meeting has to take place, if there's coffee or not. This isn't the military. This is a family. We'll get by. It's really more important what's happening with you than what's happening with, quote, ministry. And it's real important that that comes across. Proverbs 18.24, it says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what we need are those kinds of friends. What we need are people who stick closer than a brother. Turn with me to Ruth. Chapter 1. Another time when there's famine, another time when there's difficulty, another time when there's hardship taking place, we we have another story. In Nehemiah, we see how the nobles and, and the leaders started oppressing the people, started taking advantage of them. Here in Ruth, first chapter in verse 6, says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would have taken them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you and your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? And here, just to give you an idea, that Naomi's husband died and her two sons, who were married to the daughters-in-law, of course, had also died. In verse 12, she says, Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought that were still a hope for me, and even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they are grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What a beautiful story. And again, in a time of famine, in a time where things are difficult, that's when the true colors of who we are start to show up. With the nobles in Nehemiah's time, they started oppressing the people. When things are difficult, even financially difficult, when we are going through a drought, an economic crisis like now, how are we going to respond? Are we going to try and get more money out of you? Are we going to see how we can take advantage of you? Or are we going to be like Ruth? 
I'm sticking with you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I am not giving up. I'm going to be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what a great picture. I mean, when you say the word Ruth and you think of Ruth in the Bible, you know there's a whole book about her. Who's Orpah? Sounds like Oprah, but it's not. We don't, if we didn't just read about Orpah, and I said, hey, you guys know who Orpah is? Most of you would say, a whale at SeaWorld? I mean, you wouldn't know what is Orpah. Why? Because Orpah didn't stick it out. Orpah went back to her ways, back to her God. The time got tough. She said, yeah, you're right. I, I'm leaving you. But Ruth didn't. Ruth stuck through. And we know the story. Because she was faithful, stuck to Naomi, she ended up being blessed with Boaz and had a, a great future. Met her prince. Things turned out well because she was faithful, because she stuck with it. We need to be that example with one another. We need to ensure each other we're here for you. We're going to be there to support you guys. And that's why we are all necessary. I can't be here for all of you. If you all called me today and invited me to dinner, I'd say yes to one of you. I couldn't say yes to all of you. But there's a lot of other people willing to say yes. And I, you know that I'll pray with you and I'll do all that I can to, to be uh, loving and caring for you. But you need one another. I can't be everything for you. We need each other. I need you just as much as some of you might say you need me. We've talked about this in the past weeks, how I have called out for people when I have gone through those times of difficulty and struggle, when tragedy has befallen my family and I've needed someone to cry on and I've had to call you up. We esteem each other more important than ourselves and we're here for each other, not for ourselves. Back in Nehemiah, to conclude, chapter 5, verse 15 or 14, moreover, from the 12th, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food of wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds, in spirits of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah was an example. He didn't demand from the people. You guys are here for me. 
In fact, he said, I'm not going to take that. It's a burden on you, so I won't take that from you. Church should never be a burden on people. Now, I'm not here to blow our trumpet and say Genesis is the best. I'm not here to say other churches are bad. We are overall just one church. We are all family. But it's real important to us that you don't feel that there is an oppression and that you are working for us. We are family. That's why right after our time here together, we're going to have the year in review. We're going to tell you where all the money goes. We're going to talk about everything. Every cent that comes in, we're going to show you where it went. Why? Because we want you to know. There's no hidden agendas here. And if you go to a place where you feel that there is something going on like that, think about what's taking place. Because this chapter is written so that we can understand that there is a proper way to conduct ourselves with one another. And taking advantage and using people isn't the way. And as much as we don't like to admit it, it happens a lot in the church. People are being taken advantage. People are being used. It happens. Don't be ignorant of it. Be aware of it so that you don't succumb to it and also be aware so that it doesn't happen to you where you start using people. We have to be aware of these things and deal with them honestly. You know, I've been a follower of Jesus for over 30 years now, and I've known a lot of pastors in a lot of different places and in a lot of countries. And I have seen some pastors where they're very deceitful, where they tell people, oh, yeah, I have this salary. This is my salary. And everyone's go, oh, well, that's, that's reasonable. But they don't talk about the car allowance. They don't talk about the vacation allowance. They don't talk about the gym membership. They don't talk about, oh, the cell phones are paid. They don't talk about their family has a, a lot that pays the for their... Anyway, I'll, I don't want to go on too much, but that happens. Oh, no, I only make this much. You do not. You make another 20000 besides that just in perks. That's the truth. Don't present yourself as one way and act another way. That's not right. I pondered that in my mind before I said that. <laughs> it's not right. We need to be genuine, and we need to care more about the other than just ourselves so that that example can be seen in us, so that like Naomi, we can say, I'm here with you. I'm here for you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. We are a tribe. And I can't tell you how much I love you guys. And I love some of you more than others, not because I want to. It's because I know you. Some of you I spend time with. The more I spend time with the others of you, I'll love you more too, I think. <laughs> but I want to encourage you, be a part of this tribe. Be involved. Come help set up. Learn how to do the video or, or the sound. Help out at the back table. Help out with the children. Oh, my gosh. If you don't love those teachers, something wrong with you. Be involved, and, and you'll find that as you start working side by side that you develop that camaraderie and that love for one another. 
I could not do what I do without you and the people who are here. I need you guys. I need you. We need each other. And let's together move forward in the honesty and the true love that God has for us. Let's not look for an advantage. Let's not try and use each other. Let's really care so that we can build each other up and represent Jesus effectively. Let's pray. Lord, the last thing I want to do is cause more problem to the problems that are in the church. I'm not here to point fingers and say these people are wrong. God, we all need growth. We all need to be aware of where we are doing well and where we are not. We all need to be mindful that it is human nature to take advantage, but it is your nature to love and to care. And so we want what is extraordinary in our world to be ordinary in our community. We want what is miraculous to be what is natural among us. And this love that is giving and selfless, we want that to be what we are known for. And so I pray you would help us to see ourselves in this light, that like you, Jesus, who who didn't think equality or, or position was something to hold on to, gave it up freely and gave yourself, that we would see like Ruth, who didn't think, well, it would be better for me to just leave and and go start again, but stuck by and clung to Naomi and said, no, I'm staying. Lord, may we have that kind of love and care for one another in spite of the shortcomings and disappointments and problems that we all have. Lord, I, I know that none of us really that easy to live with. We all have issues. But God, you are at work. And continue that work, I pray, in each of us so that we can better represent you. And I pray for us as a community, Lord. Whatever your desire is, may it be seen in us. I pray that Genesis would represent you effectively. And Lord, even as we are going to Haiti, a number of us this Wednesday, and I I'm so thankful, Lord, for those who have given so that we can do a work there to build the latrines, to help at the school. God, I pray that who we are would be seen around the world. And more importantly, who you are would be seen in us. I pray that you would keep us safe as we travel, Lord. I pray that you would be honored in our midst and that, once again, we would represent you accurately. Father, that we would effectively represent you, Jesus. It is our desire. And I ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.